0: Today is Wednesday, September the 20th, 2023. Welcome to the award-winning Personal Computer Show. I'm Hank Key, and do you know who has your personal data? Do you know how big tech companies are using your personal data? We have been bringing computer industry news, hardware and software reviews, guest interviews, and news of user group meetings for the past 40 years. The Personal Computer Show is a three-time winner of the prestigious National Computer Press Awards. The personal computer show had for many years been a call-in talk show. The pandemic-causing studio lockdown has altered our format. The listener call-in format enabled us to know what technology issues were on the mind of the listeners. Our only advocacies are consumerism and the First Amendment. I welcome you, the listeners, to provide feedback as to what you want to hear. Address your suggestions to hank at pcradioshow.org. Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Progressive Radio Network. That's www.prn.live, that's L-I-V-E, streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the program is available on prn.live on the Internet. You can leave us a message with your question or comment at hank at pcradioshow.org. The United States versus Google in the biggest tech monopoly trial of the 21st century. Google is headed to trial in Washington, D.C., where it will defend itself over the Justice Department's claims that it abused its monopoly power in its search engine business. The United States government is taking on one of the world's most powerful companies, Google, whose parent company is Alphabet. A court battle kicked off last Tuesday in which the U.S. Justice Department argued that Google abused its power as a monopoly to dominate the search engine business. It's the government's first major monopoly case to make it to trial in decades and the first in the age of the modern internet. The Justice Department's case hinges on claims that Google illegally orchestrated its business dealings so that it's the first search engine people see when they turn on their phones and web browsers. The government says Google's goal was to stomp out competition. This lawsuit strikes at the heart of Google's grip over the Internet for millions of American consumers, advertisers, small businesses, and entrepreneurs Beholden to an unlawful monopolist, said former Attorney General William Barr when the case was first filed in October of 2020. Google abuses its monopoly power over search, Justice Department says, in lawsuit. Now, nearly three years later, with millions of pages of documents produced and depositions from more than 150 people, the case is going to trial. How the Internet is run is at stake. The government's case challenges how tech companies are able to amass power and control the products people now use daily in their lives. The outcome of the case could change how tech giants are able to do business and, in effect, how the internet is run. Google controls around 90% of the U.S. search engine market. It puts together a massive legal team and brought on outside law firms to help fight its case. The company says its search product is superior to competitors, and that is why it dominates the industry. Google says if people don't want to use a search engine, they can just switch to another. People don't use Google because they have to. They use it because they want to. Kent Walker, one of Google's top lawyers and its president of global affairs, wrote an email statement. It's easy to switch your default search engine. We're long past the era of dial-up internet and CD-ROMs. Echoes of the Microsoft case, which the government won. The last antitrust case of this magnitude took place in 1998, when the Justice Department sued Microsoft. That trial centered around claims that Microsoft illegally grouped its various products together in a way that both stifled competition and compelled people to use its products. The judge ruled in favor of the Justice Department in that case, saying Microsoft violated antitrust laws and held an oppressive thumb on the scale of competitive fortune. The Justice Department case against Google is strikingly similar and its lawyers are hoping for the same outcome. The Anti-Lawsuits of Google 2020 versus the Case Against Microsoft in 1998 That case was about a monopolist tech platform, and the government won, said Rebecca Hall Allensworth, a professor at Vanderbilt Law School who specializes in antitrust law, and so everybody has viewed that as a kind of blueprint for how we might enforce the laws against the current tech giants. This is a real test of whether or not the theory works, Allensworth added. Google's exclusive deals with Apple and Samsung. The case against Google focuses on the company paying billions of dollars each year for exclusive agreements with phone makers like Apple and Samsung and web browsers like Mozilla, which runs Firefox. Those agreements let Google be the default search engine on most devices. The Justice Department say that by securing this position, Google has been able to box out smaller rivals. Duck, 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 go! is one of those small rivals. It has centered its search business around privacy and ensuring users aren't tracked, unlike Google, which has long-track users for targeted advertising. Camel Baz Baz, DuckDuckGo's vice president of public affairs, says she's glad this case is headed to trial. Google has used its monopoly power to block meaningful competition in the search market by putting a stranglehold on major distribution points for more than a decade. Bazbaz Baz wrote in an email, So even though DuckDuckGo provides something extremely valuable that people want, and Google won't provide, like real privacy, Google makes it unduly difficult to use DuckDuckGo by default. A three-month trial without a jury, and a judge will rule. After the Justice Department filed its case against Google in 2020, a group of 35 states, along with Guam, Puerto Rico, and the District of Columbia, filed a near-identical suit against Google. That suit will be tried with the Justice Department's claims and also be heard at the trial. Lawyers for the Justice Department are expected to cover the history of Google and how it became one of the most powerful companies on Earth. Google hit with another lawsuit challenging its dominance. Two decades ago, Google became the darling of Silicon Valley as a scrappy startup with an innovative way to search the emerging Internet. The Justice Department wrote in its initial complaint that Google is long gone. Witness lists haven't yet been released, but it's expected that Google CEO Sindar Pinchai will testify. Top executives from other tech firms are also expected, including Apple's Eddie Q. Judge Amit Mehta will preside over the trial. He was appointed by President Barack Obama in 2014. It is a bench trial, so there's no jury, and Mehta will give the final ruling. The trial is slated to last about three months. If Judge Mehta rules in favor of the Justice Department, it's still unclear how he'd would sanction Google. It could be anything from fines to restructuring the company, which could ultimately affect how people experience the internet. Cable TV is on life support, but a new bundle is coming alive. Disney and Charter's historic agreement has introduced a new kind of cable bundle, and it could be the thing that saves cable TV, or destroys it. A new kind of cable bundle has arrived, one that will unify two increasingly costly bills, charter spectrum cable and Disney streaming services, into one. It's the kind of move we all would have loved cable to make 10 years ago when we all subscribed to cable. This is exciting news, but for a rapidly shrinking audience. This bundle is a surprising result of a protracted dispute between Charter and Disney. Earlier this month, Disney-owned channels on Spectrum went dark. No ESPN, no Disney Channel, no FX. Thanks to the way cable works, you couldn't even watch a freely broadcasted channel like ABC if you were using Spectrum. The two companies were in fierce negotiation and competition, Charter the second-largest cable provider in the United States, with over 32 million subscribers, was tired of the high price of Disney's channels, particularly in its pricey crown jewel, ESPN. In the end, the two giants agreed on a package that would be a win for both parties. Now you'll get Disney Plus Basic, that's the version with ads, when you pay for Spectrum's TV Select Package. Spring for the Spectrum TV Select Plus Package, and you'll get ESPN Plus too. The result should function sort of as Max currently does. If you subscribe to HBO through your cable provider, you get Max for free. Disney Plus will start to feel the same. Only in addition to the included subscriptions, Charter is taking a page from the book of Amazon and Apple, allowing you to essentially combine your bills. Do you have to get Spectrum Cable because that's the only internet provider in town? Well, soon you may be able to bundle in your Hulu with live TV service too. Multiple services, one bill. That's a step up from the HBO situation where you have to cancel HBO and then go subscribe directly to Max if you want the pricier 4K version of that service. The new bundle is a good thing for consumers. 42% 42% of Americans are paying for a subscription, so this new style of billing from Charter would mean one place to go and to see the subscriptions and call add ons when necessary. For Charter, this deal was all about trying to save its industry. Obviously, companies have been a little reluctant to embrace this style of subscribing. Streaming services want your money and were perfectly fine with you forgetting about how much you forked over. But cable is changing. Its power has waned. The reason Disney agreed to this historic with Charter in the first place is because it needs to keep collecting lucrative cable fees until it figures out what to do with ESPN. That's why it happily let Charter drop some of its smaller networks, like Freeform, the channel formerly known as ABC Family. For Charter, this deal was less about the value ads of Disney Plus and ESPN Plus and more about trying to save its industry. At an investor conference in New York after the announcement, Charter CFO Jessica Fisher said the following It could stabilize the floundering pay TV industry, particularly holding on to ESPN rights. You couldn't move to a new transformation model without ESPN. We were willing to accept their sort of market rate increases, but it was really because we knew they had that linchpin asset. And we needed them to be a first mover to get us into this transformational model. And it could be a very transformational model. If other major streamers like Paramount, Peacock, and Stars were offered through the same bill like you pay for your cable, it might bring them more subscribers and give cable a little more time. But it won't help with the two largest streaming services, Netflix and Amazon Prime Video. They don't have any linear broadcast channels to put on cable. Neither company really needs the cable companies and their bundles, which is a shame because while the new cable bundle might not save the cable industry, it's going to make things a whole lot more convenient, provided you're still one of those increasingly rare people, the one still subscribing to cable television. Free audiobooks thanks to Microsoft AI and Project Gutenberg available through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other platforms. The free audiobooks use neural text-to-speech technology to read to you in a human-sounding voice. Audiobooks are a great way to enjoy your favorite books when you're driving, resting, or just don't feel like reading. You'll find plenty of audiobooks online and through other sources. But many of the books read by human beings require a one-time fee or even a subscription. And the free audiobooks are often read in a computerized voice that isn't exactly pleasing to the ear. To overcome these audiobook obstacles, Project Gutenberg and Microsoft have created thousands of free audiobooks that use neural text-to-speech technology to generate the voices. The neural... TTS features uses AI to generate natural-sounding speech that matches the emotion of human voices. This option lets the developer of the audiobook choose a specific voice and tweak the pronunciation, pitch, rate, pauses, and intonation to create a more pleasing tone for narration. Another challenge with audiobooks is that they can take hundreds of hours to create, edit, and publish. Working with Microsoft AI, Project Gutenberg was able to cut that time dramatically by automatically producing high quality audiobooks from existing online ebooks. A team of people from Project Gutenberg and Microsoft said In particular, we leverage recent advances in neural text to speech to create and release thousands of human quality, open licensed audiobooks. From the Project Gutenberg ebook collection. Our method can identify the proper subset of ebook content to read for a wide collection of diversely structured books and can operate on hundreds of books in parallel, the team explained. This work contributed over 5,000 open license audiobooks and an interactive demo that allows users to quickly create their own customized audiobooks. To listen to any of the audiobooks, browse to the Project Gutenberg Open Audiobook Collection. From here, you can access the books via Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or the Internet Archive. The books are all public domain, which means you'll mostly find classic works from authors such as William Shakespeare, Mark Twain, Edith Wharton, Leo Tolstoy, Jules Verne, and Robert Louis Stevenson. You click on the book you want to hear and you can then listen to it directly in your browser where you're able to pause, play, skip ahead, go back and control the volume using the Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or one of the other services. You can also download and listen to the book on your mobile device. Project Gutenberg said, This project aims to make literature more accessible to audiobook lovers everywhere and democratize access to high-quality audiobooks. Whether you're learning to read, looking for inclusive reading technology, or about to head out on a long drive, we hope you'll enjoy this audiobook collection. Apple's iPhone 15 USB-C choice is baffling. To the surprise of very few people, Apple finally announced the iPhone 15 lineup at its September event, 2023, which will be the first of the Cupertino's company's handsets to have USB-C ports. But there's a major catch. While the adoption of the popular USB-C port, which is used in a huge variety of tablets, smartphones, and laptops, with the new iPhones is certainly welcome, the reveal that the standard iPhone 15s USB-C port will use the USB 2.0 standard, which was first introduced way back in 2001, not the latest USB 3.2. Apple's decision to put 20-year-old hardware in an expensive modern smartphone is really initially baffling. Well, until you realize that for a start, it seems that Apple's embracing of USB-C in the new iPhones isn't through choice but because in 2022, the European Union passed legislation to combat significant amounts of electronic waste caused by unused charges and the inconvenience suffered by users who need different cables for different devices. By including USB-C, but using very old tech, it really feels like Apple is only begrudgingly dropping its proprietary lightning ports. So it feels like Apple is essentially saying that if you want a new iPhone with decent data transfer speeds, which is important if you want to move photos from your iPhone to MacBook, for example, then you're going to have to spend more money on a more expensive iPhone model. Interestingly, the Lightning port of previous iPhones, including the iPhone 14, supported data transfers of around 480 megabits per second, the same as the USB 2.0 port in the iPhone 15. This might be another hint at Apple's reasoning as it may not want its previous insistence on using the Lightning interface to appear like it was disadvantaging its customers. What makes the USB 2.0 tech inside the new iPhone 15 look even more outdated is that Intel has announced Thunderbolt 5 the next generation of USB-C interface. According to Intel Thunderbolt 5 will have a potential max speed of a 120 gigabits per second, a huge increase over USB 2.0, and potentially up to 12 times faster than the USB 3.0 ports of the iPhone 15 Pro models. Thunderbolt 5 will also be around 3 times faster than Thunderbolt 4, which tops out at 40 gigabits per second, and 6 times faster than USB 4. We're still a while away from seeing Thunderbolt 5-compatible devices with Intel-based PCs and laptops, likely supporting it in 2024 with Intel's upcoming meter Lake processors. Even so, this makes Apple's inclusion of USB 2.0 in its latest iPhone look even more archaic. Coca-Cola is using AI to generate a new soda. Let's hope they didn't train the algorithm to give us a new Coke. AI is just about everywhere lately, but nobody expected it to be used as a salvo in the ongoing cola wars. Coca-Cola, however, has other plans as it just launched a new flavor co-created by artificial intelligence. The company's calling it the soda from the future, and it's available for a limited time in both regular and zero-sugar varieties. It's called Y3000, which is certainly a futuristic-sounding name, though it calls to mind Skynet and its army of evil Terminators more than a refreshing beverage. Coke hasn't released any information as to how it actually tastes, but testers describe it as resembling a raspberry slushy. The company did release info on the creation process. It all started with researchers collecting flavor preferences from consumers, looking for trends to understand what the future tastes like next. This data was fed into a proprietary artificial intelligence system to help create the flavor profile. Before you know it, a new baby soda was born. Doing its best secret invasion impression Coke also tasked AI to help design the artwork on the slim can. The cans have a beachy, neon-purple vibe that absolutely calls the mind and image generation platform like dall e or MidJournal. There are also traditionally sized bottles filled with a futuristic fluid. Y3000 is described as a limited edition flavor, but Coke hasn't said when the soda would head to the scrap heap to join other futuristic foods like Dipping Dots freeze-dried ice cream and a transparent and, ugh, crystal Pepsi. It should stick around through the fore, though as Coca-Cola also announced a partnership with luxury streetwear brand Ambush to release a Y3000 themed clothing collection later in the season. We did not need a new Coke. We'll see if we need a Y3000 Cola. It looks like I'm not anxiously awaiting to have this new soda available that resembles a raspberry slushy. Google is turning your car into a tablet with wheels. With new apps coming to Android Auto and Automotive, sitting in a parked car never felt so cool. Android Auto and Android Automotive are getting a handful of new applications including Vivaldi, the Weather Channel, and Amazon Prime Video. Auto users can take meetings in the car with Zoom and WebEx and with the app now available in the Play Store, browse through the web through Vivaldi when, of course, the car is parked. Vehicles running Android Automotive, meanwhile, will gain support for the Weather Channel and the Amazon Prime Video, providing up-to-date weather alerts, and entertainment while parked respectively. It's shaping up to be a busy fall for Android. In the latest quarterly feature drop, Google is delivering some timely updates to apps like Wallet and a refresh look for Assistant at a glance. Android in cars is getting a fresh slate of upgrades in the coming weeks that could act as a distraction to this year's delayed OS upgrade. Google's announcement concerns both Android Auto and Android Automotive. So whether it's your phone powering your on-the-road experience or it's built into your car itself, you'll see some changes coming to your vehicle very soon. First up is some additional details on Zoom and WebEx in-car availability. Google first teased this at I.O. earlier this year before reconfirming an upcoming launch last week. But today's news brings some real launch Windows into view. Zoom will start rolling out on Android Auto later before reaching everyone in the coming days, while WebEx launches in beta with broader availability over the next several weeks. Those aren't the only apps coming to your car. Vivaldi was already available through cars from Renault and Postar, but later you can find it through the Play Store on any supported vehicle and for drivers of cars powered by automotive The Weather Channel and Amazon Prime Video are both headed into a dash display. While the Weather Channel should serve as an excellent alternative to Google's default weather service, especially with its up-to-the-minute storm alerts. It's Prime Video I'm excited for. Amazon's video service is yet another option coming to vehicles seemingly designed with electric cars in mind. Google emphasizes all three of these apps are designed for when you are parked, an ideal experience for anyone charging their EV in the middle of a road trip. While it might take longer than a traditional gas station, streaming anything on Prime should make it a more relaxing experience. The weather channel is rolling out in the coming weeks on all Google-supported automotive vehicles, while Prime Video is now available on Renault, Volvo, and Postal cars. Finally, just like on device licenses, Digital car keys continue to become a reality, allowing your smartphone to be the only thing weighing down your pockets. After launching in Europe, it's coming to select Hyundai, Genesis, and Kia vehicles in the United States, Canada, and Korea. You'll need a compatible UWB-equipped smartphone, of course. And Google highlighted the Pixel 7 Pro and Galaxy S23 Plus specifically, But assuming your device supports it, you're one step closer to leaving your keys at home. Presenting the IT Pro Series with Benjamin Rockwell.
1: This is Benjamin Rockwell, and now it's time to talk about IT and the workplace. Let's talk about computers and technology and how they impact us. But even more importantly, this time, I want to talk about the IT professionals and all of the different nerds that are working in your company. And I'm going to be very straight up with you on some of the items I'm going to list off in this. And this is all about a recent survey that talks about why IT professionals are moving on. I will tell you, when I looked across this list, I realized this is pretty accurate. It's it's kind of on the scale of, well, first off, it, many of these different items I have personally used or considered in my decision-making for moving on. And it's going to be up to a lot of the different management to think about IT folks a little bit differently. For starters, they're nerds. <laughs> these These nerds, are far more of processors, mental processors, in all of the things that are going around. It is easy to upset a nerd. You may not be aware of this, because a lot of nerds do not show this. They have, over the years, they've been picked on and bullied, and they have faced a lot of ostracism for being a nerd and people say oh you don't know what's going on you don't understand this Uh, well no we do understand it we've processed it hyper processed it fold spindled mutilated it all in our mind and we've gone through these different things and some of these yes are personal and some of these are really only addressable by management. So let's go through these. Lack of salary increase or earnings increase, and I I definitely have moved on from positions for that. Lack of career and promotional prospects, yes. Uh, uh, Need new challenges, yes. So all of these, yes, these are easy ones. These are more of a personal basis. This next one, however, is strictly... Targeted at management. Lack of leadership and vision. And part of leadership is listening to those people who are down below you. This is all a matter of listening to the people who are on the front lines and know how IT works. If you ignore IT... If you ignore all of the complaints that they have, that that they say, oh, we need to fix this, we need to fix that. There's this problem over here. There's that problem over there. We need to do this, that, or the other thing. If you ignore all of those, you're not being a good leader. So, uh, working environment and company culture and sometimes... That could be a matter of the boss going, oh, it just, it, I, and I'm I'm using just the nerd as the 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 placement here. Oh, he's just a nerd. You can ignore him. No, nerds have feelings too. We we keep them bottled up a lot of us are uh, there are portions of our lives which we are introverts on um i'm underutilized in my current role uh, you know at, at the company okay sometimes that happens usually it's not so much overutilized or underutilized rather it's it's usually overutilized which comes in a little bit later in this list lack of exposure to the latest tech products that is a, that's a key thing we're nerds we want to we want to learn more about all of these different things especially if we hear and we believe that those different technologies can take the company to a better place and take us to a better place we're excited we're 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 very much even though we may not be that black hat hacker we're still hackers we still want to poke and prod and we want to learn Amongst all of these other items, to pursue a better work-life balance. And yes, the the nerd has a different work-life balance concept in mind. But it's still there. And then there's underappreciation and being overstressed and overworked. So, how can you address some of these things? How can you approach the nerd that's coming along to fix your computer? You can approach them with friendliness with kindness, some of the best people and some of the worst people that I remember over my career wasn't how we treated uh, the computer situation, how we dealt with the computer uh, situation that was in front of us. It was how the people treated us. I will tell you, there, there was one person who I'll just say, Uh, I'm going to simplify it because it was peppered with a number of different, from Star Trek, more colorful metaphors. You may know what that means, you may not, but uh, it was a matter of just fix the stupid computer, except it wasn't, yeah. So you get the idea there, and I still hold some scars in my past uh, to this day because of how... Poorly, I was treated on those situations, but I also have some healing portions, experiences where somebody came along and said, Hey, I don't know what's going on here. I don't fully understand this. Can you teach me? Can you help me understand? And can you help me fix this? I will tell you those people I remember with fondness. I remember them as being absolutely crucial towards rescuing my, my psyche when I was considering moving on to another company. It's all about being nice. It's all about being kind. And I'll tell you, there's plenty of different support items for doing exactly that throughout our lives. I want you to remember those items the next time you deal with with someone from IT. This is Benjamin Rockwell. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. A STEM graduate, first job in the IT industry. Jerry, a graduate in computer science, talked about his role as a first year IT worker at a prominent big tech company. When asked about the impact of his education on his job, Jerry highlighted his problem-solving ability as one of the key skills he developed during his studies. According to Jerry, his education has equipped him with the knowledge and tools necessary to approach and resolve complex issues that arise in his role, whether it's finding innovative solutions, debugging code, or optimizing software performance. Jerry's problem-solving skills has proven to be invaluable. He credits his education for providing him with a strong foundation and the ability to tackle intricate problems effectively. In addition to problem solving, Jerry emphasized the importance of collaboration and teamwork in his role. He mentioned that his studies prepared him to work efficiently in cross-functional teams, enabling him to collaborate with colleagues from diverse backgrounds. Jerry's ability to work well with others and contribute to the overall success of the projects has been a crucial aspect of his job. I started working
2: a little over a year ago. I graduated with a computer science degree. The classes I took that were most beneficial to me probably would be computer organization and architecture um, because that gave me a better understanding of low-level details of how computers operate. I don't use it in my daily job, but it widens your understanding of computers and maybe if you want to venture into that area, help you understand that. Another course I took that was very beneficial was software engineering. We did several group projects that we worked on a whole semester with about four people and in that class we learned about different methodologies, whether it's waterfall, agile. Um, I found that in the interviews, the interviewer often asked about that and they wanted to see evidence that you worked in a team before hiring someone as a, a new graduate and they wanted to hear about projects you did. And it's, if you can do solo projects, that's great, but they really look for team projects because it shows you're able to communicate with other people, it shows that you're able to take initiative and work on it outside of class, maybe um, put in some extra hours. Like for me, that class, I enjoyed it a lot because I was building an app that I enjoyed making and I was learning a lot. And I would work on it like whenever I had free time because um, I wanted to be the best I could make it. And in that class, got to work with other people. And the communication part is was pretty critical because we were working. It was, at the time, classes were Like you meet one day a week and you're online other two days a week. So it showed you could work in a remote environment to some extent. We did see each other, but, and then at the end of the day, if you had a workable project that you could show, or maybe you had a video you could show your interviewer, point them to a website that was really good because they could see that you took something from an idea to a end product that was usable. Some other courses I took, um, I took a big data class, I really didn't enjoy it too much at the time, but it provided uh, wider exposure to other areas of computer science, it was a lot of query writing and optimization, and what I really took away from that class is you learn to work in different cloud architectures, like in that class it was mostly AWS-based, so we got hands-on and we signed up for a free account there. and. Uh, learned about some of the different components of AWS. AWS is huge, but in that class, you got some hands-on experience with it. In another one of my classes, we built an app using Google Cloud, and that uh, was good because it shows, it helps you get an understanding of how things work in the cloud, because everyone's moving to the cloud now. (laughs) (laughs) If I were mentoring someone that's in high school, I would say, to try different classes, find what you enjoy, but understand that you have to take it at the right pace. Because when I was in high school, I took computer science and I burned myself out. I took the class and I it was self-paced and I, I completed it in like one fourth of the time it's supposed to take. <laughs> so I took it and I enjoyed it, but then I kind of gave up on it because I was burnt out. But I came back to it later. So someone in high school, I would say, it takes a lot of uh, Self interest and motivation for computer science because you can take the class and you might enjoy it, but you can also that's the great thing about computer science is you can build your own app or your own website and learn on your own. You don't have to, you're not confined by just learning what's in the textbook or in the lesson plans. There's plenty of information online if you maybe the course is about making a website, but you want to learn how to make an app or how to do something else. You can always find new projects to make and try different areas to see what interests you. And You, you have to be passionate about it or else you'll burn yourself out, you'll hate the job. But at the end of the day, if you enjoy building things and you find it interesting to pro- find problem solving, you might enjoy a career in computer science. Python is it's an interesting language because it's, it's taught in so many places because it's, it's easy to pick up because it's almost like English when you're reading it. With my job, we, we don't use much Python. It, it could be a good introductory course, but for what I do on a day-to-day is I'm working on back-end computer system. Yeah, there, there's so many areas you can go into. For, for tech support, like we are, at the end of the day, we are building a product for real customers. So we want to support their needs. Sometimes we'll have requests that come in, but we're building the system that customers use. So we have to take their, their ideas into account, but we want the system to be easy for them to use. It's not just getting on a call with a customer and showing them how to use the application. Like you have to you have to do research, understand what the customer wants, and oftentimes they don't know what kind of problem they need to be solved or what the final solution should look like. Um, so you get to uh, build a system and like for my job, I don't interact much directly with the customer. I work with my teammates and, and building the, the product we have requirements that come in and we work on the system but there's the lots of jobs in computer science it's, it's a wide area um, there's big data there's artificial intelligence there's computer engineering there's systems design um, there's web design there's app development there's so many areas and how close to your you are to the customer depends a lot on your role and the company size, like a larger tech company, you might not work directly with the customer. You may have tickets that come in, but if you're in like a small startup, you might have to wear all hats. You may be getting on a call with a customer, or you may be running business deals, you may be showing them how to use the app, or you may be the designer as well. Yeah, communication is very important, especially today. People work remote quite a bit and online. I took a technical writing class in college that was very beneficial. I taught you how to like write Precise procedures and instructions and manuals, and kind of makes you appreciate like how much effort goes into that. Um, for communicating with people, I found that with between teammates, promptness is very important. When you work communicating with customers, a lot of times you have to put a lot of thought into it. It has to be well tailored because you're talking to someone that's outside of the company, and you. You have to be careful what you say because you don't want to make false promises on what the product can and can't do. With teammates, promptness is very important, and just brainstorming when you're online, it doesn't have to be a well written message between teammates. You can just be going back and forth like a normal conversation, but with customers, you want to have a, a well written response. And with virtual communication, sometimes you're talking people who are on the other side of the world or different time zones, so if you can get back soon, that's good. Maybe when they're online, or if not, that's, that's fine. You can... oh, communication is very important, especially with software
0: engineering. Thank you, Jerry, for sharing your experience and perspective as a first-year worker in the IT industry. Presenting Technology Chatter with Benjamin Rockwell and Marty Winston.
1: Marty Winston joins me now. And Marty, what do you have for us this week?
3: Oh, I have something for the garage. Is this fun? Think about all of the garage door openers that don't have all those cute Wi-Fi and app kind of features in them. Yeah, okay, yeah. I've got a way to piggyback those on. And in fact, even if you have those things... This does so much more than the standard stuff. You might want to get it anyway. This is Mm -hmm. the Tailwind IQ3 Smart Garage Door Opener Controller. Okay. Not the opener. It's a controller. Now, I'm exploring ways to automate our garage. More gizmos are coming, but I'll bet the Tailwind IQ3 Wi-Fi Connected Smart Garage Door Controller is today's best of breed. Just one Mm -hmm, of these mm -hmm. can handle up to three garage door openers. All you do is, beyond the first one, you add sensors on a wiring hardness. That's the only thing, and it plugs right into it. The magnet sensors let it know if each door is closed, and they're the most reliable, rugged, sensitive, and stable magnetic door position sensors in the category. Mm -hmm, They are tough, anything short of commercial. The main module is compact, USB-powered. It comes with a plug-in for AC because that's generally all you have. My garage ceiling has USB up there, and it powers it just fine. Okay. And yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. Good, that's good and right. Uh, it uh, You can tape this module. You can tape attach it to or near one garage door opener. It has jacks for as many as three sensor wire harnesses, the first plus one or two more. And by the way... I managed to find a way to put a zip strip through it. So I went through the holes on on the angle iron up there and it was (laughs) like a one kind of mount. So,
1: so I mean, so you're talking about one brain and then you're just running all of of the wires out to the different locations, which is, uh, you know, everybody wants to sell you like individual brains for, okay, here's brain for garage door one, garage door two.
3: Groucher 3. Yeah, and those aren't the greatest brains of them.
1: I'll yeah, be taking yeah,
3: a look at yeah. a few of them. Okay. Now, the IQ3 is rated f- to run from 4 below zero to 113 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. Uh, I've seen, I've had garages hit both extremes. Yes, uh, yes. Now, so much for the hardware. Here's why to care. Yes, it can let you see whether any connected door is open or not on your app. Mm -hmm. It can let you control it from anywhere without using your openers clicker. Mm -hmm. Okay. Do you ever forget to close the garage door when you left the house or forget to open it until you're already up to it? Yes. Well, you can set up zero button automation for those chores by Bluetooth pairing with your handset and your car, both knowing when both paired devices connect or disconnect from the IQ3's Bluetooth and knowing the GPS location of your garage. Smart, smart, smart. Nice. Okay. So, it can so alert it- you. If you leave the door open for too long at night, you said how long is too long, with too long being less long at night. You mm-hmm, said when mm-hmm. nighttime is. After alerting you, if you don't intercede, it will automatically close the door. But, and you will, I'm sorry, 325, UL325 325 certification Requires assured brightness and sound levels as an alarm when the garage door gets remotely closed, and the Taewin IQ3 supports both, and they're the only thing out there I've seen that does. So also, so,
1: so, so yeah. uh, hold on, so explain that for me, because uh, oh, okay. I mean I, I don't get into a lot of the UL listing. So you're, you're, basically, you're it's a safety
3: at, thing. Yeah, you're okay. you're out at somebody's place, right, and you get a note that it, your garage door is open, and you want to close it. So you push the button on the app and it starts closing the garage door. But for five seconds before that happens, it's going beep, beep, beep and flashing a light. Thing. OK. Yeah. So if you've got a kid who's doing something stupid like straddling the photoelectric beam while the door's <laughs> yeah, coming up, yeah. you don't end up with it. Sure. Yeah. You have kids, you know. All right. OK. All right. So, you know, it's just letting him know, here come the door. Here come the door. Yeah. <laughs> uh Uh,
1: so, so, so let me ask you, does it have connectivity over to Alexa and HomeKit and all of those?
3: More than anybody else. HomeKit, Siri, Google Assistant, Google Home, uh, SmartThings, Crestron, Control 4, Hubitat and IFTTT. Okay. As, as things happen, it can give you a normal alert or a spoken alert. They've got a published API. You can roll your own automation. All right. You can even put your garage doors on your dash with Apple CarPlay or Android Auto. They support both. So oh, it, uh, all right, all right. You know, if you don't have Wi-Fi or you don't have all these tricks in your current garage door opener, when you're not ready to replace the opener, or if it does but isn't this clever, this is the answer. The best of breed Tailwind IQ3 Smart Wi-Fi and Bluetooth Automatic Garage Controller Pro is about 80 bucks at gotailwind.com and there's no monthly subscription fee.
1: Okay, so that's that's also a nice uh, a nice item. I know that there was uh, one uh one group that uh, tried to de- get a subscription fee if you wanted to be with Alexa. I mean, uh, that's uh, that's the way a lot of companies are going these days with with what was it BMW wants you to have a subscription fee if you want heated seats. And or if you want nickels and dimes, CarPlay. Ben. Nickels and dimes. Oh, not with BMW. That's no, not nickels I mean, and dimes.
3: That's but, that's, but the that's, whole idea is based on a dollar. You know, everybody just wants to sure. pull another nickel or dime out of your pocket for stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh, it's it, 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 It's getting crazy these days, and in the strangest of locations too. Huh. Yeah, do we have in your time? own garage. No, we're we're out of time. As a matter of oh, fact, we'll, yeah, we'll have it, it another will. segment next week. Yeah, well, all kinds of stuff we'll talk about. As for now, this is Benjamin Rockwell. That's Marty Winst. Back to you, Hank.
0: Thank you, Benjamin, and thank you, Marty. Public service announcements. Computer club meetings in the New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut tri-state region. Log on to the club website for more information on remote meeting ID. The Brookdale Computer Users Group has a meeting Thursday, September the 28th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. Their website is bcug.com. The Amateur Computer Group of New Jersey has their meeting on Friday, October the 6th. Meeting time is 8 p.m., Online virtual meeting via Jitsi. Their website is acgnj.org. Tech Ed Connect meets Thursday, October the 5th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom. And their website is wpcug.org. The Kingsbyte Computer Club meets Tuesday, October the 10th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. And they meet at the Park Plaza Restaurant... 220 Cadman Plaza West in Brooklyn. And for more information, the phone number is 347-278-7320. The New York Amateur Computer Club meets Thursday, October the 12th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and the website is nyacc.org. The Long Island Macintosh Users Group meets Friday, October the 13th. Meeting time is 7 p.m. Online virtual meeting via Zoom, and their website is limac.org. Happy computing! Our website is pcradioshow.org. We are heard each Wednesday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on PRN live streaming on the Internet. Podcasts of the programs available on prn.live on the internet. If you have any questions for us, just send us an email addressed to hank at pcradioshow.org. In the meantime, stay in touch and remember to do regular backups. I'm Hank Key, and on behalf of Michael Horowitz, Benjamin Rockwell, and Marty Winston, we thank you for listening. Stay safe and healthy till we meet again, same time, same station, next week.